Well, hey, New City, my name is Nate. I get to be the pastor here uh, at New City Church. Glad uh, you are joining us. If you are uh, joining us for the first time, you are so welcome uh, to our church. We are wrapping up a series today called House Church. Next week, I will do a two-part series on reconciliation. I've got a series called Reconcile. Uh, if you have a friend that you want to invite to a service next week, and you, you want to you see what reconciliation looks like from a Christian perspective, uh, we'll be talking about reconciliation uh, next week and the week to follow. So love for you to be able to tune in for that uh, great series called Reconcile. I also want to encourage you, if you are not in a group or you haven't been a part of a community group at New City or uh, you, you kind of feel like a justice burning in your heart. You feel like you want to do something good in the community and the world, but you're not quite sure what that means for you. Uh, I would encourage you to, to join the Seeking Shalom community group. That Seeking Shalom group is going to be a community group focused on creating peace, uh, 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 working uh, th from a, an angle of justice seeking from a Christian perspective. It's going to be really powerful. Uh, Lynette, and uh, Lynette, who you often see doing uh, service hosting, and Lisa Fuller, uh, who runs Shine School Partnership, will be leading that community group. It's going to be really, really powerful. I hope you'll join it. Also, Rooted is going to be starting again, and we have a group uh, have just are just closing up their Rooted season. Uh, it's transformative. Rooted, Rooted is a transformative discipleship series, and I'd love for you to sign up uh, to be a part of Rooted and get involved in a Rooted group. Uh, it will be life-changing for you. I can guarantee that. All right. Uh, we're going through a challenging time. That's like a no-duh statement. Uh, it's really hard right now. And we've been calling everybody at New City to be priests, all right? So we've been saying, you should be a priest and your home should be your place of ministry. Your neighborhood uh, should be your parish. But let's just be honest for a second. It's hard <laughs> It's hard to be your priest when I'm weighed down with my pain, all right? It is hard to be a priest when the pain of life is weighing you down. And the, the calling to be a missionary during this time uh, feels like a, a big calling because, you know, we're all going through some stuff. Uh, but I want to encourage you very, very practically today. Uh, I want to encourage you to be a priest. I want to encourage you to embrace the calling. And I think what Peter's doing here, speaking to people who are suffering, speaking to people who are exiles and sojourners, is he's trying to give them uh, some handles to embrace their priesthood. Uh, one of the handles he's going to give them is a, a handle of, of expectancy. In fact, we tend to experience our now based upon what we expect to happen then. Uh, like our now... Uh, is dramatically impacted by our expectations what will happen then, right? So our now, like we can do, if we can do the weight loss journey, if we believe uh, and expect it to produce something later in life, like we can do the hard workout if we know or at least expect something good to happen later. Like we can, we can save the money if we know that later that money is going to go to something that's meaningful and purposeful. Like we could, we, when, when we have something to look forward to, boy, it changes our perspective. What happens here in our text today, in verse 7, is that Peter says, the end of all things is at hand. He's saying, I want you to have this view of God's restorative work that is going to happen in the end. I want you to have this view of God's complete victory and dominion over everything. I want you to, want you to see that he's at work restoring the world, lost and broken by sin. He's making 
it all new again. By the way, wouldn't you love to hear that proclamation uh, from a, a governing official? Uh, the end of COVID is at hand. Wouldn't you like to hear that proclamation? It would certainly change the way you endure the next few months if you could see the end, wouldn't it? What he's doing here for uh, those listening in in First Peter is he's saying the end is seeable for the Christian. We know that all, all pain is temporary. We know that all suffering has been overcome. Uh, because Christ is victorious. In fact, hope does something to our mind, our mindset. Hope grips our mind. Uh, hope, hope sobers our mind. Hope uh, uh, it fixes our mind's eye, you might even say. The end of all things is at hand, verse 7, therefore, be self-controlled. Be sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Be Self-controlled, sober-minded. In other words, you don't have to freak out because God's in control. The end is near. He's in control. Be sober-minded. You don't have to let your mind just run with all the possibilities of what could go wrong because you know ultimately he's going to make everything right again. See, hope focuses your mind's eye. It allows you to see what you otherwise couldn't see. 2 Corinthians 4.18 as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, they're temporary. The things that are unseen are eternal. Fix your eyes on the eternal things. The things that last, like Christ's victory, like his overcoming sin and death. Hope does a lot of things for you and me, but one of the things that hope does for our present moment is hope enlightens your prayers. Uh, it, it, it illuminates your prayers. Hope gives you uh, a, a vision for the capacity of your prayers even. Uh, the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled, sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. You see, what happens when you have this real sense of God is in control and that God is good, and yet this real sense that God is victorious, that Jesus died, was buried, and rose again, conquering sin and death, giving us new life, is that your prayer life is dramatically enhanced in terms of what you feel you can pray for. You see, the light of our hope drives out the darkness of our despair. It like actually works against all of that just despairing feelings like all is lost and it's super dark and we're never gonna get out of this. When we pray, what we're doing is we're believing that there's no darkness that Jesus has not overcome. Like when we're praying, we're praying, we're praying to a God who's victorious. He, he rose from the dead, like he overcame death itself. The light shines in the darkness as Jesus, and the darkness has not overcome it. Jesus overcame the darkness. He overcame the darkness of our despair. Like we are never in a position of hopelessness as a Christian. And prayer is one of the tools that we have in our disposal to pray to a God who does change things, who does, he does miracles in lives. So to be sober-minded means you have not allowed the darkness to intoxicate you with apathy. You haven't allowed the, the darkness of the moment to intoxicate you with apathy. Listen to how he ends our section of reading today in verse 11. In order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. So when you look to the end, what do you see? You see, God in charge forever and ever, amen, restoring a world that was lost and broken by sin. You see God being victorious. You see, hope eats apathy for breakfast. Hope just does. It devours it. 
Apathy has been manifest, I think, in a lot of people's lives during this COVID season. Uh, I've heard many people just say, you know, it is what it is. Just accept it. It it is what it is. Nothing's nothing's going to change it. We just have to endure it. And you know what? I think a lot of people have thrown their hands up and they've said, I'm just going to wait for this thing to blow over. But praying people... Praying, praying people don't just sit on their hands and wait for it to blow, to blow over. Praying people know that God is good, that he's in control, that he's powerful, that he answers prayers. And when we pray, things change. In fact, prayer changes what is to what couldn't be without prayer. And so you could say, you know, and, and with, with an apathetic heart, it is what it is. But I tell you that prayer says, no, it doesn't have to be that way. In fact, it could be different. In fact, you could change it through your prayer. The, the darkness of our present will be overcome. The, the darkness of our present moment will be overcome by the light of our future purpose. In Revelation 22.5, the vision that John has of the future, I think it's notable that John says, in the future reality, night will be no more. There's no more darkness. They they will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. And so we will reign forever and ever with our God who is in control. There will no, no longer be the darkness of despair, only the light of his illuminous glory. And when we see the end, like when we know the end of the story, when we know how this all ends, that brings encouragement to you and me. In fact, it, it, it's, it manifests our life in hope. Like we know there's no darkness that Christ has never come. There's no sadness that he will not wipe away. Uh, there's no despair that he will not meet with his, with his hope and his glory and, his, and, and, and trust in who he is. You see, our, our future hope produces in us a present peace. That future hope, what it does for us is that it puts us at ease because I don't have to be in control when I know who's in control. Like I don't have to know how it ends tomorrow or next week because I know how it ends ultimately. I know it ends with God in control and God as victorious. In John 16, 33, the Bible reads this, I have said these things to you that in me, Jesus speaking, you may have peace. That in Jesus, you may have peace. I want you to have peace in me. In the world, you will have tribulation, but take heart, I've overcome the world. I'm victorious. You see, our future hope, it expands our present imagination in prayer. And I do mean imagination. This is a strategic word. You know, so, so, so often, I think, that we... Um, our prayers are not imaginative enough. The end of all things is at hand. God's ultimate victory is near. Therefore, be self-controlled, sober-minded, be clear-eyed in your resolve for the sake of your prayers. You are praying when you pray to a God who's who's overcome death. You are praying to a God who breathed and life came into being. You are praying to a God who lays out the universe in the palm of his hand. 
Uh, you're praying to a God who knows every hair on your head. You're praying to a God who knows when a, when, when a bird falls from a tree. You're, you're praying to a God who has infinite knowledge and infinite capacity, which is why we, we, we need to expand our imagination. What could happen through prayer? What God could do through prayer? For the eyes of the Lord, this is early in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 12, for the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Other scriptures say things similarly, things like ask anything according to God's will, he hears your prayers and answers them. When you're praying, you're praying to a God who listens. And you're praying to a God who's capable. So, from the words of the Apostle Paul, now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, some versions say imagine, according to the power at work within us. God could accomplish through your prayers something greater than your imagination. Look, I know there are some things right now in your life that are, are desperate, right? For, for many of us anyway. For, for many of us, there are things in our life that we think that not even prayer can fix this. We're, we're tempted to believe that way. Which is why I think we have to have in mind, the, the end is near, like God's in control. Like he's, like he, the, the, the script has been written. Like he is victorious. There, there, there's no uncertainty about where we stand when we stand with him. And so we are free to be imaginative. To think big about our prayers and to pray big things. We have to fight, we really have to fight against apathy settling in. We have to fight against saying to ourselves, it is what it is. Because it doesn't have to be. Apathy does something to you and me inside of us. It's, it's a, it's a, it's a, it, it causes us to just to be fatalistic about the future. To surrender control to the currents of the world. And I, 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 I want to encourage you, okay? I want to encourage you to pray. Because prayer changes things. You are not helpless, and you are not hopeless. And too many prayers go unanswered because too many prayers go unprayed. Too many prayers go unanswered because too many prayers go unprayed. I do think there's a real distinction between having a sentiment or having a wish or having a desire than, than going to God in heaven and saying, Father in heaven, here is my prayer. Here's my petition. I, I need an answer from you. That is distinctly different from just wishing or, or wanting or desiring something to happen. Agnes MacLean's commentary says, prayer, therefore, is to be the engine room of the church family enabling it to function as it should amidst all the pressures which might otherwise cause it to collapse. Prayer is our answer. So I've got a question for you. What if we spent less time imagining our future pain? Come on now. 
What if we spent less time imagining our future pain and more time praying for our future purpose? I cannot be the only one who experiences, like I'm imaginative, right? I'm a three-dimensional thinker. Uh, I, 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 my, my mind has this capacity to imagine all the things that could go wrong. And I, I'll tell you, there are times, there have been many times in my life where I have been so stressed out about a future pain that had like a 20% chance of actually happening. But my emotional state was so overwhelmed and, and I'm so overcome because I'm, I'm imagining all that could go wrong. But what if, what if, what if, what if you, what if you spent some of that energy that you often spend imagining all the things that could go wrong? What if you spent some of that emotional energy with God in prayer imagining all the things that could happen? What if you could imagine a different future, one that glorified him and loved the other? What if you could imagine a purpose in your life that that brought about real joy in other people's lives? What, What have you imagined? Not just praying for answers, but also asking God, Could he use you to be the answer? See, the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled, sober-minded. Like, don't let your mind get drunk with apathy or run out of control with imagining all the possible pain scenarios of the future. But let your mind drift in imagination to all the things that God could do for his glory and the service of others and perhaps even through you. You see, prayer will do a lot of things for us, but one of the things prayer will do is prayer will expand your capacity to love. I think these things, these verses go hand in hand, verse seven to verse eight. I think there's a flow of thought here in 1 Peter 4. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. The word here, earnestly, literally means stretch out. To love earnestly is a stretch out love. Keep on loving, literally, keep on loving. Read this passage, literally. Keep on loving one another, stretching out the love. Just keep on loving each other and stretching it out. Do you know, it's very difficult to pray for someone and not to have your love stretched out for them. Jesus says, pray for your enemies. You know, when you start praying for someone's well-being, we start asking God to show up in somebody's life and to make a difference in their life. It's, a, it's a very, very difficult to, 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 to pray for them and then not have your love capacity grow for them and be stretched out for them. See, prayers open the heart to love and love, it opens the heart to hospitality, which is why verse nine reads, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. Love opens the heart to, to, to invite others. In fact, literally invite the stranger into your life. Hospitality, hospitality literally means, the word, the word translated hospitality literally means loving the stranger. Loving strange people. So you could say a symptom of authentic Christianity. All right, I, I, I think I'm going to say this. I was questioning whether I should say this or not, and I'm just gonna say it. You know, there there are times in in life where we need need prophets to call out things. 
Prophets have a unique role in the Bible. They call, they call people to repentance, okay? A, a symptom of authentic Christianity is a loving community that is unified in her diversity. A, a symptom of authentic Christianity is hospitality, welcoming the stranger, a loving community that's unified in her diversity. Read it again, verse 9. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. This is... When you see Christian community that is not open to people who are strange and different, it's not authentic. When you see Christian community closing itself and then grumbling when outsiders come in and mess it all up, it's not authentic. It's not the real deal. And you should be able every once in a while to say, you know what, there are some things the Bible says that are true, and those truths should trump every other experience that I have in life. And a symptom of authentic Christianity is a loving community that's unified in her diversity. But you could say a primary symptom of sin is self-centeredness. Selfishness. Protectionism. In Matthew 24, Jesus is saying, hey, when the end does draw near, there's gonna be some symptoms of that. Lawlessness will be one of those. Lawlessness will increase. The love of many will grow cold. People will become profoundly self-centered. I mean, really, laws are, lawlessness, and hearts growing cold are symptoms of profound self-centeredness. But when the gospel cure starts to work on the sickness of self-centeredness, others will experience your humility. When the gospel cure starts to work on the sickness of your self-centeredness, other people experience a symptom of your humility. You know, when the Bible talks about Christian humility, it says things like this, and this is Paul speaking in Philippians, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Look to the interests of others. Look to the interests of the stranger. Look to the interests of those who are not like you. You know, God's love in us, it opens a door for people who are not like us. Keep stretching out your love. How far should I stretch it? To people who are strange to you. People who are different from you. Be hospitable. Don't grumble about it. <laughs> but instead, do it, do it out, of, out of humility. Count other people more significant than you. Uh, look to their interests above your own. God's love in us, it opens us up. To love people who are not like us. Okay, here we go. God's love in us opens the door for people who don't vote like us. Uh-oh. God's love in us opens the door for people who don't act like us. God's love in us opens the door for people who don't believe like us. See, God's love in us, what it does, it stretches, it stretches, it stretches us to welcome people who are vastly different than we are. You could add all kinds of categories to that. God's love in us 
It stretches us to love people who don't look like us. See, God's love, God loves imperfect people. God's love extends to sinners like you and me. And God loves imperfect people because imperfect people are all there is. His love goes to imperfect people and you are an imperfect person whom he loves. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly. Stretch out that love since love covers a multitude of sins. Don't you see when you've experienced Christ's love covering your sins, how that humbles you, how it opens your heart to others, how it, how it enables you to experience and show grace in your life? You see, in God's house, the door is always open to sinners. It's always open to sinners. In God's house, the door is always open to imperfect people. Christianity is especially suited for people who don't have their stuff together. There is, there is no limit to God's stretched out love. There just isn't one. There is no limit. And Jesus even tells stories of just, just to express that truth. Like he tells a story of, uh, of two prodigal boys and one who says, I wish you were dead to his father, runs off and squanders half of his inheritance. And then at the end of the story, the father runs out and embraces that boy and brings him in and they throw a big party. And the lesson is that God loves prodigal children. God loves sinners. So, in this series, we've been saying, you are a priest. And God has gifted you to do priestly things, like loving people the way he's loved you. And so I think the flow of thought here seems natural to me when you read verse 10. You know, stretch out my love, show hospitality as each has received a gift. Use it to serve one another. As God's stewards, of good stewards, of God's very grace. Like, be a good steward of the gift that God has given you. Edmund Clowney here says something interesting about this text. and I, It's grabbed me right away. Peter does not offer a sample list of spiritual graces as Paul sometimes does. There are passages where the Apostle Paul will say, here are some examples of spiritual gifts. But this line grabbed me. It jumped right off the page of the commentary. Peter evidently doesn't fear that a Christian will miss his calling if he cannot find his gift classified in Scripture. In fact, Edmund Clowney says, we aren't supposed to be looking at these lists of spiritual gifts in Scripture and identifying ourselves as one of them. God gives varied gifts. He gives varied gifts for the purpose of serving the other people. There is, I mean, I love, I love taking assessments. I love learning about myself and personality assessments and Myers-Briggs assessments and the Enneagram. I'm a three, by the way. I, I, like those, I like those tests. I do like to do the self-exploration. But the big idea of these gifts isn't what the gift says about you or does for you. It's what the gift is. is God has given you a gift to steward for others. He's given you a gift to, 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 be, to be used in, in, in your priestly duties as you love one another. Rick Warren years ago wrote a book called The Purpose Driven Life, best-selling Christian book of all time. First line of the book is, it's not about you. It's a, it's a, it's a foundational statement of Christianity. It is simply not about you. There could be, there could be no feeling that, 
It is a greater enemy of Christianity than the feelings of self-centeredness. You see, any application of Christian teaching that doesn't elevate our love of God and, uh, and others is failing its original intent. Jesus, Jesus said, if you want to know what the law is all about, loving God, loving the neighbors, what's it all about? And if you read the Bible through that lens, what's this do? How does it help me to love God more? How does it help me to love the neighbor more? What you'll find is those patterns jump off the text every, everywhere you look. Here in our reading today, you see in verse eight, above all, keep loving one another earnestly. Love the neighbor. And then you see in 1 Peter 4.11, to him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Any application of Christian obedience that doesn't elevate God and, and increase your capacity to love the other person is failing his original intention. Christian truth is, can, never, can never be expressed in arrogance. Like humility has to always be forward in all of our dialogue and all of our conversations. Humility has to be has to be forward right there in the middle. Because if my mind is occupied by glory of God and the love of others, it cannot be occupied with myself. A few weeks ago, I was reading Edmund Clowney's commentary in First Peter, and I screenshot. I, I, I usually will highlight and throw things in. Folders, but I, I screenshot this quote and and I printed it and I I put it a place where I would see. He said, "When the truth of Christ is affirmed in arrogance, it is denied. When the truth of Christ is presented in arrogance, it is denied. Because if the truth of Christ does not manifest itself in you and me as humility, it hasn't rightly been received." This Christian truth will always be elevating God and loving the other person. See, hu- humility opens your mind to the needs of other people. It's asking the question, like, <laughs> uh, what's, what's in your interest? What's, what are you thinking about? What are your needs? That's what humility, it freezes up, by the way, because one of the reasons is if you are someone who's received the gospel and you have prayer on your side, and you're talking to a God who's good and a God who's sovereign, you're not worried about today or tomorrow or what you'll eat or what you'll wear because you know God is good and he's got you. And he's, got, he's got you. And because God's got this, you can now be freed up from the self and you can be worshiping him and loving other people. And so humility opens your mind to the needs of others and the spirit empowers you to meet those needs. So he says, There are varied gifts, but whoever speaks as an example, as one who speaks oracles of God, or who serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. Whatever you you speak to the benefit of others, or you serve other people, all of it's to God's glory and is done through the strength of God. And so, at this point, in almost any teaching on this subject, people want to know what's my gift? What's my gift? How do I know what my gift is? I want to be a good steward of God's gift to me. As each has received a gift, the text says. So what's my gift? and How do I steward it? Over the years, I've developed a kind of riff on this that have been helpful for me and helpful for many who have attended New City. 
And so I, I have said it this way. Your purpose lies at the intersection of the world's greatest pain and your greatest passion. Your purpose lies at the intersection of the world's greatest pain and your greatest passion. So what pain has God gifted you for? You know, there's a lot of pain in the world. How do you choose? <laughs> what pain? How, do you, well, how does your mind get attracted to what? You know, at some point, I think you might have a Popeye moment. I've had a few of them. A Popeye moment is a moment like, this, is, this may be too old, all right? A reference for most of us. There was a cartoon, Popeye the Sailor Man, his girlfriend was olive oil. All right, Popeye would sometimes say something like this. That's all I can stand and I can't stand no more. He would see something in life and he'd say, that's all I can stand, I can't stand no more. And many of us have had in our life a Popeye moment where there's a pain in the world and you've seen it you visualize it. You said, I've had all I can stands. I can't stands no more. The, the first time for me, I had this feeling in a profound sense. I was in college. I had become a Christian. I was seeking a degree in Christian counseling. I was in my uh, last year of my undergraduate program working with at-risk youth at a high school in Central Florida. And I was pretty sure that I wanted to become a counselor. I mean, pretty sure that's where I was headed. In fact, I had applied for some graduate programs, was looking to do uh, some kind of venture counseling because I loved the ropes courses and whitewater rafting and all that kind of thing. And so I got a, an internship working for a youth program that uh, kids had been expelled from school. They're way back into uh, the regular population, maybe even to uh, undo their expulsion was to go through our um, our counseling program. And so I led small groups. We did adventure counseling exercises. We did ropes courses and, uh, and rafting trips and camping trips. And we really pushed these kids uh, uh, physically. And then we would have conversations about what was going on in their life. There was a particular small group gathering where there was a kid in this one small group who didn't speak. Uh, it was obviously he had had some trauma in his life that had closed him up. And so he was nonverbal, wouldn't look in the eyes, and he was nonverbal. There's another gal in this particular small group who would express her pain, you know, and she, her coping skill was to, you know, celebrate her pain. And every week she was uh, worse off than everybody else in the room and wanted to make sure everybody knew that she was worse than everybody in the room. And so we had done a ropes course uh, event, and we were gathered together for a small group gathering. And this young girl's expressing her pain, and this young man who had been uh, silent for the entire, really the entire several week process of this counseling program. He finally spoke, spoke up and he told this young girl to, to shut the, um, to, to stop speaking. And he said, you don't know what it's like. And he began to unpack how his father had come home, inebriated, had pinned him to the floor, And hurt him. And I, and I, I couldn't stand it anymore. 
it was a it was a Popeye moment for me. It's it's really one of the background stories for me. This is why we started Shine School Partnership. Because kids who are vulnerable, who are hurt, who are abused, is an area of my life where I, I can't I can't sit by and not do something about it. And that pain, it it just it's just it's a Popeye moment. And my passion for education, for students, for sports, and all those passions, they overlapped. I became a student pastor. The, the first 10 years of my student ministry, all, all the kids in my youth group were pretty jacked up. Because I was just, I was hungry for bringing the good news of Jesus to the most vulnerable because I couldn't stand it anymore. You know what humility does, by the way? When the gospel has its full effect for you, humility makes you empathetic. You start to feel things for people. You start to want things for people. I'll tell you lately, there's, a, there's another Popeye moment that's emerging for me in my life. By God's grace, there have been a number of pastors I've gotten to serve around the country for various reasons over the years. And by God's grace, I get to be a trusted ear from time to time. You know, over a thousand, it's almost 1,500 uh, pastors leave the ministry every year because of the pain uh, of doing ministry. It's, it's hard. It's hard. And it's hard during COVID. And I'm listening, to, I'm listening to stories of marriages being strained and, and dark, the darkness of depression. And I'm watching people grow apathetic towards the gospel and towards towards the, their, their faith grow, growing cold and not expecting or believing big things out of God anymore. And it's impacting me. It's a pain I feel. See, godly empathy can open you to righteous anger when you see injustice. It can open you up and you go, somebody has got to do something. And so... I've got a question for you. Whose pain are you prone to feel? If the gospel's having its full effect in you and, and it's your, your love for God is in, on the increase, your love for others is on the increase and you're considering the needs of others and whose who's needs, whose needs are popping off the page for you? So what pain has God gifted you for? Is a good question to ask. Another good question to ask is what passion has God gifted you with? Ways to ask this question is what makes you smile? What could you talk about for hours? What, what work in your life are you proud of? Because there's an intersection 
between the passions God has given you and the pain in the world. And if you can identify where that intersection is, there's purpose for you there. If you look close enough, you will find an intersection of purpose at others' pain and your passion. That might give you something to pray about. You do not need permission to be a priest and to do priestly things. You simply don't. You're a chosen race. This is declarative, okay? You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellence of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. You see what happens? He calls you to dark places, to pain places, to bring his light. And he does so by enabling you with, within the areas of your passion and the world's pain. He enables you to find purpose there to declare his excellencies of the priest. So pray. How can I meet this pain with my purpose? Pray, how can I turn this passion into mission? I want to encourage you as a priest, consider turning the places you live, work, and play into places of ministry. If you're like, what passion? Where do I, how do I narrow it down? Do you have passions in your neighborhood? Do you have a passion for the, for the people in your community? Do you, have a, do you have a passion for your work and what you do? Has God uniquely skilled you in some practical way in your work? Do you, do you have a passion for your hobby and the ways that you play? Like, how could God turn your mountain biking or your, your golfing or your whatever your hobby is into a, 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 an aspect of ministry? I'll give you a good step towards ministry. A good step towards ministry is practicing hospitality. Just say, okay, I'm going to pray, and as I pray, I'm going to start praying for people, and as I pray for people, I'm going to stretch out my love, and as I stretch out my love, I'm going to make myself available to be hospitable, to invite the stranger in. The tool we've given at New City for years and years and years is the, is the blessed tool. If you want to know how to practice biblical hospitality, be prayerful, listen, eat, Servant story. Be prayerful for people in your life. Listen to their stories and particularly their bad news stories and the pain stories and the hurt stories of the communities that you live and then eat with people. Invite them in. Show them hospitality. Serve them and care for them. Uh, use, your, use your gifts that God has given you. Steward them well in your service of others and then tell the story of God's grace. Declare his excellencies in the dark places. To offer Christian hospitality is to offer people peace. By peace, we mean the making of things right again. Shalom, or peace, is restoring all of the wrongs back to rights. There's a custom in, in, the, the, in the New Testament church that is one I'm not excited to repeat, but I think it's worth noting particularly in this time of COVID. First <laughs> Peter 5.14, last verse of First Peter. Greet one another with the kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ.
What is this kiss of love? You know, it's a cultural thing that we don't, you know, we greet each other with handshakes, although now after COVID, who knows how long that'll last. Fist bumps, maybe elbow bumps or whatever. You know, I, I lived in South Florida for a number of years and all of the, uh, my Latin American friends and, uh, would, would greet me uh, on Sunday morning services with kisses on the cheeks. You know, there, there are certain cultures still that do a lot more kissing than your typical sort of American cultural, you know, uh, norms. But a kiss was how you recognize a rabbi, for example. So when you look at uh, Matthew 14, 44, when Judas betrays Jesus with a kiss, he says, the one I kiss, uh, you kissed your rabbi on the lips. That's how you identified your rabbi. And so you would know who somebody's rabbi was because they kissed the rabbi on the lips. I'm not expecting anybody at New City to kiss me on the lips. I can tell you that much. Um, but uh, this kiss, this, this kiss in the, in, in, in the celebration of church was an important part of the celebration. Tertullian says this, what prayers complete from which the holy kiss is divorced? What kind of sacrifice is that from which men depart without the peace? The kiss of love, as First Peter calls it, was also known as the kiss of peace. It was a way of ending the service. It was usually, you, it would happen after the celebrating of communion. Remembering the broken body of Jesus, the shed blood of Jesus, that he made everything right again. And then everybody would kiss each other and the church would say, I'm at peace with God and I'm at peace with you. And they'd celebrate in the kiss of peace. Barclay in his commentary said, to us the kiss of peace may seem very far away. It came from the day when the church was a real family and fellowship. When Christians really did know and love one another. It is a tragedy that the modern church, often with vast congregations who do not know each other and do not even wish to know each other, could not use the kiss of peace except as a formality. It was a lovely custom which was bound to cease when the reality of fellowship was lost within the church. I've been meeting with pastors around the country and I'm leading a cohort of pastors from South Florida right now, about 15 pastors at, at influential churches in South Florida. And I, we had this experience at New City, and I'm hearing it from other churches too. When we had the drive-through uh, event or the prayer event that's happening on Saturday or will have happened on Saturday when, this, when you see this on Sunday, uh, a deep sense of emotional connection people pulling up in their cars at the, the, the drive-through event for back to school, uh, crying in their cars, uh, receiving prayer, sharing in goodwill towards one another, sharing in peace. If COVID has done anything, it's heightened our awareness that we were a people made for community. We are people made for one another. And the whole point of house church the series anyway, was to encourage you to, to, to offer Christian community to your neighbors in your home, to your friends in your home, to your community group in your home, but to, to, to take, take that community experience and bring it home. I am not you know, super thrilled that, you know, that COVID disrupted our flow on Sunday mornings, and I'm really looking forward to restoring our Sunday morning gathering times. 
but I don't want to miss the opportunity for each one of us to grow. Because you, you, are, you are the church. Wherever you are right now, you are the church. And you're an extension of Christian com- community. And when we meet the world's pain with our passion, we bring God's peace. And, and you, you have the unique opportunity to, to, to show the world that Christianity loves strange people. We love the stranger. We love the foreigner because we're exiles and sojourners in a foreign land. That's who we are. God loved us when we were strange to him and brought us in. And man, our love is radical and it's wild and people are desperate for it. So I want to encourage you to pray. Bold, imaginative prayers around the pain that God awakens you to the passions that God has given you, that you might produce his peace somewhere in the world. All right. Today we're going to have a live Q&A on Instagram and Facebook at 9.15, the 11th service. Love for you to join that Q&A. You can find us at New City ABQ, both at Instagram and Facebook. Uh, Ask questions, make comments. I'd love to be able to riff with you, give you a little bit more of kind of the cutting room floor stuff that we didn't get a chance to cover in the message today. We practice in generosity, prayer, and communion every week. These are movements that we end our services with. And I want to encourage you to be generous, something you may not know about, uh, that just recently uh, we were able to serve Mission Ave Elementary School in such a profound way. We did all this work at the school. But one of the things you may not know about is that every child at Mission Avenue Elementary School, because of the work of New City Church, received a backpack, and that backpack was full of school supplies, and teachers were supplied what they needed for their classrooms. And because of your generosity, there was no kid or teacher in need at Mission Ave. And I'm so proud of you and all the work you do. We do a terrible job of telling these stories, but man, we are consistently as a people loving and serving and caring for others in our community. Thank you for your generosity. Please keep being generous to the mission of New City Church. I want to encourage you to join the prayer Zoom room if you'd like to go in and, and, uh, and just pray with somebody, one of our staff team members, they'd love to pray with you. Celebrate communion at home. Break the body of Jesus and remember his body broken for you. Take the cup, remember his blood shed for you and how he brought peace to the world through his broken body. As true to form, we're going to pray together a corporate prayer. It's a prayer that we can read and say yes to together. Gracious God, thank you for, gift, for gifting us Help us to make you smile with how we use our gifts. Enable us to serve people who are in pain. May we produce some of your peace on earth as it is in heaven. Amen. God bless.